All right. Hey, once you met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. I know that many of you just love that time. That is your favorite time to meet the same person every week, but we love it. Um, hey, turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're in the book of Nehemiah. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one so you can follow along with us. But we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. Been making our way through the book of Nehemiah. We are actually flying through this book, right? It took like six months for Philippians. They were already in Nehemiah 8. It is beautiful. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just kind of recap one little thing. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've talked about compassion. Uh, we as a church ask compassion. It goes 25 just kids from around the globe that we could sponsor and support. Um, and so we got 25 packets. We've, we've been able to sponsor 19 kids. So we have six packets in the back. So first of all, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for just your generosity for wanting to sponsor a kid. Um, yeah, that is amazing. But we'd love to get these other six kids sponsored. Uh, there's really just nothing in it. We just want to, as a church, bless uh, the world in Jesus' name. We want them to get an education in Jesus' name, medical attention. Um, that's what your money will be going to, to the gospel, uh, to all the ends of the earth. So there's still some packets in the back. Hey, Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm looking so forward to this chapter. Uh, let me kind of recap and explain, like, what is Nehemiah? What's going on? What's happening? We've been calling this series Holy Ambition. And the reason is we see a guy who had ambition for God, for God's work, for God's kingdom, for the gospel. We see a guy who cares about what God cares about. And for us, in a sense, there's a desire to kind of redeem the idea of ambition. Ambition gets a bad rap. We know that selfish ambition is destructive. We know the Bible says a lot about selfish ambition being negative. But there's something about holy ambition. Paul, in, in Romans 15, 20, says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. There's a desire where we want to have a holy ambition for God and God's work. And we as a church, just praying through things, you know, year two in a sense as a church, there's some things moving forward in the future. We, we want to be a group of people that are willing and ready, if God is in the work, if God is in the midst, to take risks for God's kingdom. We want to be those who send others out to plant churches. We want to do things where we send people overseas or locally, and we want to do things in the name of Jesus. We want to take risks again. And so I'm kind of hoping that as we study this, that God would give you personally vision, that God would give our church vision. There'd be like a burden for our community, a burden for South Florida, where we go, we kind of, we have to do something. We don't want to sit back. Nehemiah, as we have looked at and studied, just to kind of review, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah had a very unique position. He had a very trusted position. Uh, Nehemiah served the, at the king in his right hand, and one day he finds out, hey, listen, your home, Jerusalem, is still in ruins. It's still in rubble. So, so Nehemiah goes, king, will you send me back to my home? Will you send me with provisions and an army? Will you send me back so I can rebuild my city? And he says, yes. So as we've seen in Nehemiah, Nehemiah begins to rebuild. There's opposition. There's people throwing accusations at him. Even internally, his own people, the own Jews were selling other Jews for profit. They're charging interest on to, to the poor Jews. And Nehemiah's like, we got to stop this. This is not good. Chapter 6, last week, we talked about how he just was persevering. Just over and over again, they're trying to get Nehemiah distracted from the work that he was called to do. And he goes, no, I'm doing a great work. And so we talked about focus and perseverance. Now, I don't know if anyone did their homework of reading chapter 7. I talked to some of you. You're like, yeah, I got to like verse 50, and I could not read the names anymore. Um, but Nehemiah 7, here was the idea. The city's built. The walls are built. The gates are hung. And Nehemiah's like, now let's fill the city with people. There is no city without people. So let's get people back in the city. Let's bring an economy back. Let's bring people back. Let there be life again here. And so now the, the, the walls are rebuilt. The, the gates are hung. 
people are back in this city. And I think that's kind of like to the extent many of us, if you know Nehemiah, you're like, okay, what happens next? Next, they're in the city, and this is where revival breaks out. This is where just you see a very unique uh, time in the Old Testament and New Testament where God's spirit is poured out in such a way that people are repenting, falling on their face, rejoicing, celebrating, and God is doing a really unique work. If you remember in Nehemiah 1, we talked about kind of like the birth of revival, brokenness for the community, prayer. Here, we're in the middle of revival. So we're going to read chapter 8, and we're like in the midst, watching revival happen. And this is exciting. This is one of those things that when I read this, I pray, God, do this again. Do this again. Let there be a sense of 50,000 plus people like Nehemiah's day just falling on their face saying, our God is the one true God. We worship him. We serve him. We're going to follow him, submit to him. And we're going to see that this revival is just based off of God's word. As soon as God's word is reintroduced to the people, there's revival. And so simply for us, we're going to look at God's word, the key to revival. The key to any great revival in American history or just international history, world history, any great revival you study, it's always around the word of God. It's almost like this rediscovery and hunger and passion for God's word. And so this is kind of our prayer. We're a church that loves the word. We go through the word. We believe there's power in God's word. So we read it. We talk about it. We unpack it. And we're just kind of praying, just God, do it again. We're not kind of praying. We are. We're saying, God, do this again. Let everyone here in this room have their own mini revival with you, Jesus, where they've tasted and seen your good. Then the quietness, they hear God just speak to them and say, I love you. I've redeemed you. I've bought you at, your, at a price. Therefore, glorify me and your body and your spirit, which are mine. Like, we want you to hear from God, and we want, we want to do this corporately together. Just how can we walk in this? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter. We're going to look at some key points. There's so much good stuff here, so bear with me. There's going to be a lot of points today, a lot of good thoughts, I hope. Uh, but let's do this. In Nehemiah 8, as the people read, it says they stood to read. So we're going to stand to read the word of God. So why don't you stand really quick, and we'll read Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at verse 1. It says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in the front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Verse 4. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for this purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood uh, Mathatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masiah, <laughs> and at his left hand, these are great names if you're looking for baby names, Pedadiah, uh, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashemadadah, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Just say it fast. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and he opened it. And all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, okay, I love that name, Echeb, Shibbethai, Hodijah, Messiah, Kilita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, we'll never read those again, uh, helped the people to understand the law. Listen, they helped the people to understand the law. 
and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scribes and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, go your way, eat the fat, and drink the, sw- the sweet, and send portion to those whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13. Here's the application of the word. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' uh, houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, uh, branches of olive trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, these little shacks, these little houses, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the days, uh, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there's a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Stay standing and we'll pray. Father, we just thank you again that whenever your word is opened up and explained thoroughly and clearly, that it's like shining a light into our souls that it's revealing things maybe we've always knew but never really just submitted to. God, we just ask that your word would just speak to us today, that God, we'd be a people who hunger for your word, who submit to your word, who rejoice at the sounds of your word. God, um, we just thank you again. We thank you that we can worship you, seek you, and know you through your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are the word made flesh. God, that you dwell among us. So Lord, we just ask that you'd speak again and move again in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've ever been a part of something like this, but have you ever been in the middle, like in the midst of an incredible moment? Like I want you to think through this, because I had to think through this deeply this week. Um, Have you ever been in the midst of like in a historic groundbreaking moment? You're going, this will go in the history books. Like actually in the midst of it. I'm not like saying watch it on TV but you're watching something maybe happening in a country. You're, th- like you're there on the ground. You're going, this is going to be recorded forever. This is going to be historic, this moment. Like I'm talking like you're in the control room during Apollo 11 when they land on the moon. You know, yesterday, uh, 50 years ago, yesterday, uh, Apollo 11 landed on the moon and man first walks on the moon. I said that to my wife. I'm like, Kimber, can you believe that 50 years ago, like today, man walks on the moon? And she's like, so we think. I'm like, don't do that. Um, but we're... But when you think about that moment, being in that room, the moment it happened, 
You know, I, I, I honestly, looking back, I don't think I've ever been in the middle. I'm talking like in the middle of something historic. Like I'm trying to think like this is going to be earth-changing, life-changing. I've never really been in the middle. I've seen it. I've watched it. But I don't know if I've ever been in the middle of it. Like the closest thing for me is like a personal thing. It's for me and for any parent in here, it's like the birth of your child. Like the first time, like when we had our son Micah, then had our daughter recently, like when you're in the operating room, you're like, see this babe, and you're like, welcome to earth. You don't know what to say, or you're so excited. You're like, it's a pretty messed up place, but we have Jesus, it's okay. Like those are literally our first words to the baby, but there's like, for us, it's earth shattering, it's life changing. It's just, it's it's historic to to us. And, And I'm bringing this up because again, I know we can give examples. I've been to this part of the world that was pretty cool. Like, but no, I'm talking about being in the middle of it, like in the middle of it. See here in Nehemiah 8, they're in the middle of revival. They're in the midst of it. They're not reading about it in some history book. Like, they're a part of it. They're a part of this moment that's going to change Israel's history, that's really going to help welcome and usher in the Messiah. They're in the middle of a groundbreaking movement. And here's what I want to say. This is, like, on my bucket list. Uh, My bucket list, you could say, is I would love to be a part of some global or local revival. Not that even we have to be leading it, but just in it. Just watching God daily move and save and change lives. Like, I would love to see 50,000 people gathered and saying, we worship you, Jesus. Like, in the middle of it, those who once did not know God and then came to know God. Just being a part of that would be so life-changing. And here's what we see. This really is not just like, oh, one day there'll be revival. They're in the middle of revival. And I think here's what, what is key. We're going to see in the center of revival, obviously, as we read over and over again, is God's word. There's absolutely no revival without God's word being spoken. And I think this is just so key in 2019. I think this is so important for us. I think we, we're very aware of God's word, but we don't know it. So I want to like kind of look at this more in depth. So as we walk through the text, we're going to have a few points, all right? I'm going to th- throw them up here for you, and um, don't be overwhelmed. It's okay. Six points, six. That's like double. I know. It's okay. Um, <coughs> honor or hunger for the word. We're going to this hunger for the word. They're going to hear the word. They have this deep honor for the word. We're going to see them handle the word appropriately. We're going to see that holy is the word, and then they heed the word. They apply the word. All right, so let's just kind of walk through this, because I want you to see the different responses to the word of God. First one, the very first thing we see is this hunger for the word. Look again at verse 1, Nehemiah 8.1. It says, now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law, which uh, of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. All right, first thing we see is this hunger for the word. So here's the context. Um, Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. It's around 445 BC. Uh, Ezra's been there. The scribe's been there for about 13 years. They finally rebuild the walls. They finally uh, rebuild the gates. There's 50,000 people that moved into the city. And right when they done, did this in Nehemiah 7, they moved in. We see that within that month, the people go actually to the priests and they say, bring the book. Bring out the book. Bring out the word of God. Bring out the law of Mo- Moses. The people ask for this. I love this. I want to encourage you guys. I want to encourage like every church. There should be a sense which the people like require of us, people who preach God's word, it's like to preach God's word. Like I want to hear God's word. Bring the book. Bring out the book. There is this deep sense of hunger for the word of God from the people. And I don't know how you create this. I don't know how you create like a hunger for the word of God. There's different verses in the Bible that talk about how there'll be famines in the land for the word of God. People will want to hear the word of God, but they they won't be able to. I I hope that we can be a generation that we have a hunger for the word and it's just satisfied with the word. 
They say, bring out the book. And so here's a first thought, obviously, it's simple. Do we hunger for the word of God this way? Like, do you and I long for the word of God this way? Are we hungry for it? Do we wake up in the morning and we're like, ah, oh, I should do that thing where you open the Bible and read it? Or is it like, we cannot wait? What is our approach to the scriptures? You know, throughout the Bible, you do see it interesting. It's in the Bible, there's this hunger for the Bible. It's in Job 23, verse uh, 12. Listen to what Job says. He says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I am more hungry for the word of God than for my own, for my own food. You see, when the people say, bring out the book, can I tell you what they're consciously doing? They're saying, we are consciously submitting ourselves under the word of God. By saying, bring out the book, they're acknowledging that these words are not just normal words. They're not man-inspired words. There's something more to this. By saying, bring out the book, they're saying, we're going to place ourselves under this book and the authority of this book. So bring out the book. What a great phrase. I would love for there to kind of be that chant of bring the book. I remember I went to this conference and there's a lot of guest speakers and pastors were there and like for like the whole day there's like 10 different pastors you know preaching and I remember I heard one of the most powerful sermons I'm, I'm in tears and then this next pastor gets up and I can remember his points and they like rhymed but they had there nothing he never once opened the bible he never once went through the scriptures and I remember some behind me was like yelling like open the bible and like I was like hey chill out. but I was like and, and someone like she's completely right for 40 minutes he just talked and nothing nothing from the word there should be this hunger for the people like bring out the word we want the word of God. Do you notice it says they're gathered as one in the open square? They're gathered as, as one in the open square. This reminds me of Acts chapter 2. You guys remember in Acts 2? Jesus died and rose again. He ascended into heaven. He goes, hey, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And it says what? The people were gathered together as what? As one, or with one accord. They're just gathered together as one. I really do believe if we can just set aside our preferences like, I like this style of worship. I like this style of preaching. I like this. If we could just set that aside and be just joined together as one, that's when it seems as if God does great things. How do we just say we want to be gathered as one? We want to be hungry for the same thing. We want to set aside our personal preferences for the sake of unity, for the sake of something so much bigger. And there's this deep hunger for the word. Listen, it always begins with hunger for the word. You can't, we can't really fake this. You can't force this. I can't be like, hey guys, get hungry for the word of God. Like, I can't make that happen. But that is the desire we're going to get. Holy Spirit, create a hunger for the word of God again within people's lives. Amen? Let us be hungry for the word. Number two, we're going to see this. Uh, they hear the word. Like, they put their ear, it says, literally, to the word. Look at verse two. Uh, Nehemiah 8, verse two. It says, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the, in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Here is the idea. He read this from morning till midday. You guys caught that too, right? It's about six hours of reading. Uh, people who study this and look at it, I was trying to look into this, to read Genesis through Deuteronomy out loud takes about 14 hours. Just reading through Genesis through out loud, talking like slowly going through it. For me, it might take like five hours. I don't know, because I talk kind of fast. But um, it took 14 hours to go through the word of God. For six hours, he's reading it. Six hours. I never want to hear someone complain like, that was like 50 minutes. I can't believe how long it was. Like, no, no, six hours. They went through the word of God. And there's this deep, deep, not just hunger, but they're attentive. It literally says they put their ear to the word. 
That's how it says it. They're putting their ear to like, we need more of the word. Uh, one of my, the phrases I love, not just from Warrensville Day, but their ears were tentative to the book of the law. See, again, we live in an interesting time. So when I talk to people about the Bible, my neighbors, my friends, family, you know, when I meet people, it's like, oh, I've read the Bible. I've read like five times. I'm like, oh, really? What's Galatians about? <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm like, yeah, no, like, when you ask, it's funny, people like read it, but I'm like, but do you comprehend it? Like, do you, do you understand it? Do you meditate on it? Like, like I want to know, like, what happens? See, it's interesting to me. Um, we have friends, or you might know people who are, like, a baseball whiz. They can name every stat from the Chicago Cup from, like, 1953. And you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And you're like, you learned of your PhD in, in baseball. Like, it's incredible. And when it comes to the Word of God, it's like, tell me about, again, like, the book of Hosea. What's the, what's the big idea? And you're like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Why can't we just apply ourselves to the Word of God in this way? It's funny, I've, I've talked to people who like, we shouldn't teach kids really deep theology. They can't really understand it yet or take it in yet. I'm like, yo, they understand the plot to Harry Potter. I don't understand that plot. Like, they actually, they're pretty smart. They're pretty deep. Like, I think we can teach them th- rich theology. I think we can go deeper than we actually give them credit. Like, we can. We should. You see, it, there's a verse in Hosea 4, verse 6. It says, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. There's something about just when we lack just the word of God. It just destroys us. You see people whose lives have nothing to do with the word. It's like they dry up, they wither out, they die out. Versus those who are in the word, like a, a tree planted by a river of water, they seem to produce fruits and life. The people just gave their ear to the word. You see, there's something about why we do this on Sundays. If you ever think about the church liturgy or the idea of like how we do our worship service, you could say the centrality of it is the word of God. We're trying to say that we can't know God apart from his word. He is literally the word made flesh. God spoke at various times and in various ways to the prophets of old, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. There's something about just the word walking among us. Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, he said this in 1 Timothy 4. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. He goes, till I come to you, be in the word, read it exhort each other, teach doctrine. Make this like the, the centerpiece of, of the way you do discipleship, the way you do the, you know, the church life in a sense. And that is our hope. We want to teach the word, go through the word. Again, if you do study this, any great revival, there's literally this rediscovery of the word. And, and it's incredible how it just change, it, it, they, they base their whole lives around what they've heard. And it changes their community they build hospitals, they build orphanages, like they become proactive, and you go, wow, the church is actually being the church when they submit and give themselves over to the word of God. It's so beautiful to watch. One of the best preachers, kind of like known to man, is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher over in the UK back in the day, and here's what he says, a really long quote, but it's worth it, okay? I know you can do it. Uh, Here's what he says. He says, what is it that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? It is renewed preaching. Not only a new interest in preaching, but a new kind of preaching. A revival of true preaching has always heralded these great movements in the history of the church. And of course, when the Reformation and the revival come, they've always led to great and notable periods of the greatest preaching that the church has ever known. As that was true in the beginning, as described in the book of Acts, it was also after the Protestant Reformation, 
Luther, Calvin, Knox, Vladimir, Ridley, all these men were great preachers. In the 17th century, you had the exact same thing. The great Puritan preachers and others. And in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, and the Wesleys, Rowlands, and Harris were all great pre preachers. It was an era of great preaching. Whenever you get the Reformation and revival, this is always and inevitably the result. It's always going to be just this, this heralding of the word of God, of just proclaiming it, getting it out there. The parable of the sower is this idea of just, just throw the seed out. Get it out there. If it, dry, if it falls on rocky ground, if it falls on just, you know, by the wayside, if it falls on thorns, just throw it out. Just get the word out there. It's like inevitable any great revival happens around the word of God. And that's our hope. We don't want to be a church that shies away from this. We're going to go through the books, books of the Bible. We're going to go through those hard passages. You know, we come across a passage, you go, okay, I'm going to offend literally everyone in the room today. You know, it's good. There's something about the word of God. I'm so glad it does offend me, Josiah. I'm so glad it does something to my flesh. Like, that makes me squirm. That was difficult to hear. I'm not going to try to make it say something I want it to say. I'm not going to try to force it to say something it's not saying. I want to take it at face value, and I want to submit to it. And I'm so thankful that the Word of God offends essentially everyone at every point in time, in every culture, in every history. Sooner or later, you have to say, I need to stop necessarily me interpreting it, but it's going to interpret me. It's going to read me. It's going to diagnose me. It's going to do something to my heart that I have to give myself over to. There's something really healthy about saying, no matter what it says, God, if there is a God, obviously we believe there is a God, but this is what we say to maybe non-believers is, he, sooner or later he's going to say something that you're going to disagree with. He's going to. And, and in the end, who's right? And in the end, what if, he, what if God always agreed with us? What if God always said what was popular in culture? It's like, no, the word of God endures forever. It, it transitions every time, every culture, every people, every thought, every it just transitions all of that. It's that one constant, that one stable uh, stability that we see within our just life. You see, we see that they give their ear to the word. Let me just say this, please, and I want you to be really clear. Don't just read the Bible, comprehend the Bible. Something I, I learned early on, just private thing for me, is I would read the Bible in the morning. I would get to work or wherever I was going. I'd be like, what did I read? <laughs> what did I just read right now? Uh, and I would actually reread the passage that night, and that that's helped me. That still helps me. The passage I read in the morning, I read at night. It's not just about reading. How do I comprehend? How do I meditate? How do I celebrate? How do I rejoice? And how do I apply? How do I live out? How do I live out in community? It's not just reading. Don't just read the Bible. How do we talk scripture to one to another? How do we exhort one another daily with the word of God, what is still called today? How do we just have it be so just ingrained into our DNA? You know, from a very just young age, I'm very thankful. My, at a young age, I've mentioned this before, but my dad would constantly turn on some people on the radio, like J. Vernon McGee, who no one knows. Okay, like some just old class. I would just constantly be listening to scripture in the background. And I remember just being angry. Like, dad, turn this off. He's like, no. Like, I don't want to listen to this during breakfast. He's like, no. And honestly, there's times where it's like, I'm glad. You know, there's something about faith comes by hearing, by hearing the word. At first, I was very just bitter and hard. I didn't want the word. I was like, oh, I've had enough word. And then over time, God, just the water of the word is just kind of pounding on me, pounding, just softening my heart of stone. There's just something about the word. There's no secret. So when you see people living a life that is just following Jesus, it seems to be thriving. When you look at that, the secret really is like they love the word. They're in the word. The greatest men and women I know know the word. They bleed scripture. Just a part of them. You know, this is how we want, to just be a part, we want to be a part of our lives in this way. They give their ear to the word. Number three is this. They honor the word. They honor the word, outwardly and inwardly, but let's keep moving on with this idea of they honor the word. Uh, verse four, it says this. It says, so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for, the, for this purpose. And beside him at his right hand were some names, uh, verse five. And Ezra opened the book. 
in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Let's just walk through this. There's a deep honor and reverence for the word in this moment. It's like they literally built a platform. This is for, like, for this purpose. They built a platform so the word of God could be heard. And again, imagine this, 50,000 people, no speakers, no microphone. You'd be like, if someone's like breathing heavy, you're like, please stop breathing, I can't hear. Like, you have to get so close and listen so attentively. And they built it so they can be heard from just far away. And they're, they're gathering and pushing in. Like, imagine that, that, I, that picture of people pushing in to hear the word. Like, I need to hear the word. What is being said? What is God saying to us right now at this moment? Let's press into this. And they build a platform for this. And I, I think it's not just like, yes, it's a physical platform, but let's think about this. How do we as people just give the word of God a platform? How do we give the word of God a platform in our lives? How do you give the word of God a platform in your life? Like, does the word of God, does the Bible, does scriptures have place in your life? Does it have a platform in your life? In verse 4, he says that he stood on the platform, but it says this phrase, and I just want you guys to like look at it, verse 4 and 5. He says, and Ezra opened the book. He opened the book. There's something about just opening the book. You know, I don't know if you grew up in a home like this where there's like a Bible in every room. You're like, oh, that's cool. And like, maybe like you walked by it and you're like, rub it like a rabbit foot. And you're like, oh, Bible. <laughs> but like, we can't just look at it. We gotta open the book. There's something about just opening the book and just letting God speak. So you're just saying, God, I'm going to open your word. I'm going to give you time. I'm not going to give you the time where I'm tired. I'm not going to give you the time where I just got to do, I'm going to give you my best, the quality time. I'm going to open the book. There's something so beautiful about them opening the book. And again, I want you to see this. This is even for us. Why is this the center, you could say? Like, it, it might be visible that we see this, but in a sense, I also hope that it's, it's something we take just figuratively is we want the Word of God to be center, not just on stage, but in our lives. We have the Bible here in the middle and, and on your lap. It's like we want it to be the center of everything. We want God to lead us through His Word. You know, I was blessed, and I'm not trying to say this like, but I was very, pr- I don't think I knew I was a part of it. When I was like 18 years old, I was, I was blessed to be a part of this discipleship group with a guy named Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith was the, the pastor of Calvary Costa Mesa. He started the Calvary Chapel Movement and, you know, the Jesus People Movement. Probably, the, not probably, according to most historians, that was the last, like, revival in America in the 1960s and 70s and just hippies getting saved. And here we are, you know, I'm 18 years old and it's like 2005, or I don't even know what it is, six, seven. And I'm, I'm, we're meeting with him and we would just sit with him for an hour and he'd walk through passages of scripture and talk to us. And I remember going, we'd ask him, we'd go, Chuck, like, what do you think, though, about this, when this happens in the church, or when someone does this, like, what do you think? And I remember he would just answer, and he would, like, quote a verse. I'm like, cool, cool, but what do you think? Like, what do you think about this? And, like, he'd answer with another verse. You're like, okay, great. Like, I don't want to know your verse. Like, what do you think? And what he thought was the word. Like, his answer, and I think at 18, 19, it's very frustrating. You're like, yeah, but I want to know your opinion. Give me the inside scoop. And he was like, quote a verse, and you're like, ah. Give me another, and I, I think what he was doing was so foundational. It was not let me shape you by my opinion or my thoughts. Let me shape you with the word of God. And, there, and there's something about how do we answer with scripture? I might feel a certain way. You might feel a certain way about any topic. Name the topic. How do we answer with scripture? But what does God's word say? What, would, what is God's heart for this people? How do we answer and speak scripture in that way? How does it, like I said earlier, how do we just bleed scripture? It just comes out of us naturally like that. Here's the word and just speaks it. They gave honor to the word. I've never seen someone honor the word like that guy. How do we give honor to the word? 
How do we honor Jesus who is the word? See, there's this idea of just they gave, they, I love this, they build a platform that people stand. When do you see people stand? Like at wedding ceremonies when the bride's about to walk in, we're like all rise and everyone stands up. Why? You're like, because something glorious is about to happen. Like and the bride's going to walk in and this idea of scripture, like people stood because like, why? Something glorious is about to happen. The word of God's about to be read. Let's stand for that. And that there's something so powerful about that. And then the people hear this. They hear the preaching of the word. And you know what they say? They say, amen, amen. They're basically saying, if you've ever heard that, it's just so be it. Like, yes, Lord, I agree. I'm behind that. I want to be a part of that. Like, let me, I am so for that. Amen. It's okay to say amen, by the way. I know some of you are like, huh, no, it distracts me. It's okay to be like, yeah, amen. There's something, and not like that you have to force it, but there is something. When you hear the word of God being taught and you go, amen, I, I, I'm behind that. Amen, I agree. I'm, I'm for that. Amen, I'm going to be a part of the solution for what was just said there. Amen, I'm going to repent because I, I need repentance right now. It's something like, yes, Lord, so be it. I don't think us, we, I don't think our danger is like we're going to get too fanatical. I don't think like, oh no, like our church might go too far in their love for Jesus. I think our, our danger is the other end. I think we can't, we, our danger might be the idea of just being lukewarm, just kind of being okay, we're okay with where we're at. I don't want to press in. I don't want to look that serious. They're standing up. They're yelling amen. Their hands are lifted. Uh, no, I don't think so. This isn't a Pentecostal church. It's like, no, that's not the idea. This is something where we're like, yes, let's be this. Let's just be scripture. If this is something where they're like taken serious, they're raising their hands, amen. Let us respond the way that God and the Holy Spirit prompts us to respond. Let's not be afraid of just being excited about the gospel. I would love for us to be people who just have that same enthusiasm and passion. Again, I don't think our danger is we're going to be too fanatic. I think we might be more corpish, like a corpse. Like, I think we might be too, like, dead. Like, let's wake up. There's something really exciting about what's happening here. You see, the idea of amen, amen, again, like, yes, I'm behind this. And they raise their hands. And know what it says? And the people bowed. Let's look at the end of verse 6. Proud says it. Uh, well, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads, and they worshiped their faces to the ground. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this vision of God on the throne, high and lifted up, and these angelic beings appeared. They were called seraphim. Seraphim were like these angelic angels, these angels essentially, where they had six wings, and it says with two they flew, with two they covered their face, uh, with two they covered their feet. And the idea when I read that, the idea of the face and the feet is, God, we can't look upon you. You are so holy. My feet, don't look upon me. I'm so not holy. And there's this response when the word of God is read. You really see who God is, and you really see who you are. And they're seeing God and going, God, you're so good. And they raise their hands and they bow their heads. And like, God, I, don't, I can't even look upon you. You can't look upon me. They're having just this moment with God. This, this holy moment with the Lord. Like, don't look upon me this way. Here's, here's what I want to point out. I know that we, we believe in the doctrine of God's omnipresence. Absolutely, obviously. God is everywhere at once, always. God is everywhere, no doubt. There seems to be something, though, in scriptures, and you can see this in many occasions, where it's not just like God's general omnipresence, but you do see God's tangible presence, where it's almost like this is weighty, this is heavy. I don't know how to respond in this moment. I don't know what to do. It's like a man, he's like, I'm, woe is me, I'm undone. That God is so in the midst. You know, it's funny, you can read people who talk about the revival, like when we were in Wales and the Welsh revival, like you can read about these different revivals and they go, it almost feels if someone's over your shoulder the whole time, but also lifting you up at the same time, pushing you down. And like the way to describe it is so interesting. It's like, I just feel like you, you, it's a tangible presence. It's like weighty. It does something to it. And it's okay. It's going to affect your emotions. It's going to affect your whole being. We don't have to be those, like, let's love the Lord God with our mind, amen, and our heart and soul. Like, we need to love with our whole being. And it's okay to have a, an emotional response. And you go, God, I just feel like you're so near. I don't even know what to say or do or respond. I just want to be still and know that you're here and know that you're God. And this is what's happening. 
the people just praising and bowing. And, and let's just keep reading. Not only is there just this honor to the word, there's this idea that this is holy right now. And the word of God is holy. And that moment is holy. So number four is, uh, or number four, actually, God ahead, is handling the word. Verse seven. It says a bunch of names. Verse seven. Go down to the middle. And it says, And the Levites helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. This is so key. Can we not forget this? So they're reading the word of God. Then there's a priest and some men going into the crowd and saying, hey, do you know what that means? Let me help you know, understand what that means. And they're handling the word of God with care. They're like, let us, let, us, let us walk through this. Now, some think because they actually spoke Aramaic, and yet this is being read in Hebrew, that's very likely. They most likely spoke in Aramaic at this time, being slaves in Persia and different things, like they probably did. So it could be, let me just tell you now what was said in Hebrew and Aramaic. It could have definitely been that. It most likely was just what it says in the text, helping them to understand like, let us clarify. Do you know what this means? Do you, again, remem- remember, they haven't seen anything like this in over 100 years. They haven't experienced anything like this in a very long time. The different festivals and feasts, I mean, that'd be their great-great-grandparents that maybe knew of those things, not them. And so they're like, let us help you understand these things. You see, this is like kind of our job. This is what I want to do. This is why we have leaders and small group leaders. We want to go, hey, let's, let us help you walk in this and know this and understand this. You know what I love about Jesus? There's this, there's this little saying about Jesus in Mark 12. It says in Mark 12, 37, listen to this. It says, and the common people heard him gladly. I love that. Jesus spoke in such a way where the common person's like, this makes sense. I get this. I finally can understand the word of God. And that's like what we're, we're trying to create roles of different teachers and leaders and small group leaders and kids ministry leaders. Like, let us help them understand the word of God. Let us speak their language so they get it. This is so key. This is so important. I cannot stress this enough. One of the best definitions I ever heard of preaching, like if you go, what is preaching? What is preaching? Like, what is this job? What is teaching? What is that? It's Psalm 119, verse 130. Listen, the unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Please listen. Maybe God's going to call you to teach. I think he's called all of us to proclaim and teach his word. Maybe in a greater capacity. But listen to this definition. The unfolding of your word brings light. It gives light. There's something about when you open the word of God and you unfold it, it's almost like this light beam shines out and you go, it's exposing finally those parts of my heart I didn't want to expose. It's actually making sense to me in a way I've never heard before. I'm hearing him gladly. Probably the best definition of preaching is how do we unfold the word of God? How does it bring light and illumination to our lives? How does it impart wisdom to the simple? That no matter if you have a PhD or you're a child, the idea is like, I can understand this. This is so simple. This is, so, this is not just easy. It's complex, but it's simple. It's, it's deep, but it's edible. Like, it's all of the above. And how do we, how do we preach it and teach it in that way? One of my favorite stories in this is in Acts chapter 8. There's this Ethiopian eunuch guy, and if you read the story, he's re- he has the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah, and he doesn't know what he's reading. We'll throw the verses up here. Acts chapter 8, verse 30, it says this. So Philip, he's one of the deacons, he ran to this guy, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And this is what Philip asked. He goes, do you understand what you're reading? What a great question. We should just ask people. And I love the honesty. We would lie. He said, how can I, uh, how can I, unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. 
I love this. He goes, do you know what you're reading right now? You're reading the prophet Isaiah. Like, do you have any idea? I actually have no idea. Uh, how can I, unless someone like helps me? And he goes, well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me help you understand. Something so, and he was actually reading like about, obviously Jesus the Messiah will tell you the text in Acts 8. It's incredible. This idea, this idea is true for us. How can we understand unless someone guides us? They're coming alongside the people and they're handling the word of God with great care, with great tact, coming and speaking to the people. That's number four. Number five is this. They're going to see that the word in that moment, that day, was very holy. So holy is the word. Look at verse nine. All right, verse nine. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat. I love that. Drink the sweet and send portions to those whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy and do not be grieved. Just stop there really quick. This is a, a holy moment that's happening. Uh, this is what theologians call it biblia sacra like the, the scriptures are sacred they're holy this is not just a normal thing happening this is not just a normal man talking inspirationally this is a holy moment holy day because the holy words of god are being spoken maybe you like wonder like why does it say holy bible why does it say that on the most bible it says holy bible why is this holy in second timothy chapter three look at this verse 15 we'll put it up here Paul writes to Timothy and says, From childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly, thoroughly equipped for every good work. He goes, you've known the Holy Scriptures since you were a kid. You've known this. You know what the scriptures are about. It's about salvation in the name of Jesus. The Old Testament. It's about this idea that there would be one who would come to save. The just shall live by faith. Old Testament, not New Testament. That they're looking forward to the promised one. They're looking forward to the one who could save them from their sins. Because you know this, you know this. You know that all scripture is God-breathed. Maybe you know this. I love that phrase, God-breathed. It's this, this phrase, theopneustos. Thea, God. Neustos is this idea for pneuma or breath or spirit. It's saying this is the very breath of God. This is the very spirit of God. You know that the scriptures are the breath of God. As I'm talking, the breath is leaving me. The word of God is the breath of God leaving me. This is his very word. You know, this is a holy moment happening. This is a holy day. And here's what I want to point out. This is appropriate and also inappropriate, how they respond. And I like this. They hear those words of God, and they're weeping. And this is so fascinating to me. Did you catch this with the priests are going, hey, don't weep, don't cry. Like, huh? We'll talk about that in a second. But they're weeping, which I think is very, very appropriate. Here's why. Romans 3.20 says it this way. Uh, it says, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Hear that really quick. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Do we get this? As the law is being read, they're going, Oh my gosh, God's law. We are so far from this. We are so sinful. And they're weeping. God, your word says this. We're doing the exact opposite. As the word of God is being read, they're, being, they're acknowledging their sin. They're acknowledging their life being so far from this. There's something about the law that says, Hey, listen, um, the wages of sin is death. Hey, this is what God's word says. This is your lifestyle. If you don't, if you don't do this, it's going to lead to death. And guess what? No one can do it. No one can keep it. No, the law brings knowledge of sin for all of us. But here's the good news, is that through law comes death, but through Jesus Christ comes grace and truth. The law condemns us all, but Jesus paid for that condemnation. The idea, the law just points us to Jesus. The law is saying, look at yourself. I can't imagine, like this, this moment for them, it's like, oh, we're so sinful. They're going, but don't you understand? 
that God promised from before the foundations of the world, that he would, he would provide the sacrifice of sacrifices to pay for your sin. You don't have to be sad. You don't have to feel this way. There's something so incredible about this moment. I want, I want you to track with me, guys. The law brought this knowledge of their sin. The law brought this deep, this heaviness where they're crying and weeping and saying, God, we've sinned so much. You know what it reminds me of in John chapter 8? It's that woman who's literally caught in the act of having an affair. She's caught in the act of adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring her out and they throw her naked before Jesus and say, Jesus, we caught her up in an affair. And the Bible says that we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus just doesn't respond and quietly writes something in the ground. And it says, one by one, her accusers are leaving. I just, I just imagine Jesus writing down their sins. And they're like, oh, snap, I, I gotta get out of here. He's just writing something down, they're leaving. And she's like, Jesus asks, he goes, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And see, this idea of uh, the, the law shows our sin, it does. It really does. But there's also the celebration of Jesus that I paid for that sin, now just go and sin no more. Now walk in that freedom. Now celebrate that. Celebrate the fact that our sins are forgiven. You see, in chapter nine, they're gonna repent. Again, in chapter 9, there's going to be a lot of sin confession and tears. And it's appropriate in chapter 9, but not in this moment. Because in this moment, they're about to celebrate this festival, this feast. There are days before this great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. So they're saying, don't weep. This is not the time to mourn. This is actually the time to celebrate. And this is what the phrase is that we know and love. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's one attribute of God I feel like we never talk about or don't talk about enough. Do you know that God is joyful? Do you know that we know that? What, I've, read, I've read, I can't say so many. I've read books on the attributes of God, and you never see the chapter on uh, the joy of God, God's joy. You'll see the love of God, the, great, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, but I've never seen it's like, hey, the joy of God. And yet, God, this is how God describes himself. God says, I rejoice over you with singing. Do we see God as, as glad? Do we see God as a God filled with joy? You know, Nehemiah is not talking about your joy. He's saying the joy of the Lord, that's your strength. Be reminded of God's joy over you. I think some of us in this room right now need to know that God is joyful. Be reminded of that. That he rejoices over you with singing. I see Micah in the morning. I go, Micah, I love you, buddy. Good morning. And I, do you notice that that's how God views you? That God sees you in that same, in that same light? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The idea of strength is like it, the joy of the Lord is your hiding place. It's what you run to. It's almost communicating this idea that's very similar. It's of sanctuary. The joy of the Lord is the place we run to for grace. The joy of the Lord is the place we go to when we need strength and healing and help. The joy of the Lord is our Sabbath. That is our rest. That is like the word he's using here. He's saying, know that this is a portal for energy, a portal of grace to get to God, just to go to God. God is a God of joy and that's going to strengthen you. That's going to change everything. I, I think one, I hope one of the defining characteristics of our church is like, man, they have joy. It's like, yeah, because we have Jesus. Like, we have him. Like, Jesus even told you, I want to give you my joy in John 15. Like, this is something we, we just see throughout scriptures. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, this should define us as people. Uh, John, or here we go, Jeremiah chapter 15, here's what he says. He says, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart for I am called by your name. God, I saw your word, I ate it and it brought me joy. Psalm uh, 19 says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. There's something about when you actually read the Bible, I believe correctly, it should produce joy. Yes, it'll produce brokenness. Yes, it'll produce a side of, oh my gosh, the knowledge of sin, but also the knowledge that that sin is paid for. And that produces joy. Amen? 
I want you to see there's, the word is holy, and it produces repentance and joy. And we'll talk more about repentance next week, but let's just focus on this idea of joy. Because he goes, don't sorrow, don't weep, rejoice. I love this now. Eat the fat. All right. <laughs> enjoy this. Celebrate. Barbecue is what he, he's literally saying barbecue. You know, enjoy this, enjoy this time. Verse 13 to 18, we're not going to read it, but here's the last point. Number six is this. We're going to see heed the word. We read verse 13, 18. Here's the idea. They heard the word of God, and, and here's what happens. They're going, wait a second. It's that time. It's, it's that month. We're in just a few days. We're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles or, or Succoth or however you want to put it, but the idea was we're supposed to be supp- celebrating this seven-day, well, really eight-day festival where we build these little booths. We build these little houses either on top of our house or next to our house or in the open market. We're supposed to be building these little booths, reminding ourselves how for 40 years we were sojourners in the wilderness. We were travelers in the wilderness. God provided for us. He gave us food and water and everything we need. He eventually brought us into the promised land the idea, the Feast of Tabernacles was to remember and celebrate what God has done and is also to look forward to the day that we would be abiding with God, that we would have our dwelling place with God. They celebrated for two reasons. God took care of us and he will take care of us. God provided a home for us and God will provide a home for us. And it was this eight days of like, in a sense, celebrating. It's like a camping trip and it's supposed to be fun. And I'm sure it's just very like, I love the idea for like kids that even just seem like you can see it, taste it, touch. Like you're just a part of this festival that, you know, engages all of your senses. And they're saying, no, no, this is not to be a time of weeping. We're supposed to be celebrating this festival in just a few days. And everyone got their supplies ready and everyone celebrated this. It says like, like no other day. Like since the days of Joshua. Basically, I believe it's a hyperbole for saying we have not seen this festival celebrated since the original celebration of this. We have not seen it celebrated in this way. And here's the idea. They heard the word of God. They realized where they're at in their calendar. And they say, we need to apply this and do this immediately. And here is the point, obviously. When you and I hear the word of God, we need to apply it immediately. We need to immediately say, oh, wait, God's word says that? Oh, let's do that. What is the point of reading the Bible if we're like, we read it? And we're like, oh, yeah, that was cool, but I'm just going to do the exact opposite of what I just read. Like, the Bible says you're actually reading judgment upon yourself. You're hearing God's word and knowing it and going, okay, but I'm still going to do the opposite. There is this idea where the Bible says the word is like a mirror. And when I look in the mirror, I go, this is off. That thing's my tooth. My hair's all over the place. Like, I need to, like, straighten things up a little bit. And the idea is I look into the word of God and go, things are off. I need to change something about my lifestyle, my habits, my patterns, my beliefs, my, my words, my saying, my speech. You see, here's how revival begins. Revival happens when we come before the word and say, we are going to change. Revival happens when we say, God, we've not been doing this for so long, but we're going to now start obeying you. We hear your word, God, and we realize we've been off, and we're going to submit to it. Listen, please listen. This is huge. It's not just about hearing the word or comprehending the word. It's about applying the word, living out the word, submitting to the word, experiencing the joy of the Lord that comes from the word of God. When I found your word, I ate them and it rejoiced in my heart. There's just something about experiencing the word in this way, giving heed to the word of God in this way. You see, this was a tradition of theirs that they go, we got to get back to this tradition. We got to get back. This is good for us. This is good for our people. Why do we gather? Why do we go through the word of God? Why do we pray? Why do we sing? Why do we do community? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Why do we do baptism? Because we realize God gave us these things. Let us do them. Let us walk in them. And if there's something in here that we're not doing, we repent and we turn to you, God. And that is the idea. Hey, church, apply this to you right now. As you look at the word of God, what is that area you go, I need to surrender this. My speech is just off. I'm just constantly bitter, constantly unforgiving, constantly trash-talking that person. God, my lifestyle is off. 
you tell me this is the will of God, my purity, but I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I'm fondling them. I can't, I'm just doing this, whatever I want to do. Like, where is it off? And we go, God, we hear your word and we're done fighting it. We're done being slaves in another land. We give ourselves fully over to your word and watch rejoicing come again. Watch this idea of when you submit yourself to the word of God, you go, oh my gosh, when I actually live out the word, I feel like different. Like, yeah, like that's how God designed it. It's pretty cool. You know, he made our soul to enjoy him and know him. And there's something about hearing the word and living it out and let us do that. And here's what we're going to do. Today, we are going to take communion. We are going to remember and celebrate the death of Jesus. And please don't get sidetracked. Please listen to this. The first time that they ever took communion, what did Jesus do? It says he gave thanks. Communion is a time to yes, Look at our God and remember how he paid for our sins. Absolutely. It should be a holy moment, but please do not miss this. Communion is a celebration that your sins have been paid for. Communion is a time to rejoice. The idea of communion, the word even Eucharist, when you see it originally, it just means Thanksgiving. That's what it means. Thanksgiving. I'm giving thanks. So when they say, eat the fat, party, celebrate, pass this on, help others, let other people celebrate. When they're saying this for us, communion is a time to celebrate Jesus and the work of the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. We hold that cup, we hold that little cracker, and we go, Jesus, thank you that by your blood, by your stripes, we are healed. That Jesus, your body was broken, your body was pierced, so that my sins could be forgiven. Thank you. We celebrate and remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And let me say this, if you do not believe in Jesus, there's no need to take it. There's no, you have to do this because you're here, by no means. Don't remember something you don't want to remember something you don't even believe in. But if you believe in Jesus, you received, you take it. Celebrate. Celebrate that fact, Jesus, my sins are paid for. You're so good. So I'm going to pray. We're going to do some worship a little bit. As I pray, when I'm done praying, they're going to pass out communion. As you get it, I'm going to ask you guys this. Please not just take it quickly. Just thank Jesus. Thank him. Jesus, thank you for this. Talk to him. Thank you. Tell him, God, this is what, you're, this, is what this means for me. This is what this has done for me. Pray. Talk to him. When you're ready, take communion where you're seated. We'll have some worship going. Spend some time just thanking him some more, praising him some more. We'll end worship and just close out with some closing thoughts. All right? Hey, listen, the word of God always has and will birth revivals. Let us be a people that go back to the word, love the word, hunger for it, celebrate it, apply it. Amen? Let's do that now as we remember Jesus through communion. Let's pray. Father, I, I know there's... Um, there is just so much. Your word is inexhaustible. God, there's even more here. I just pray, I ask Jesus that you really would create a hunger, a passion for you. And God, not just for knowledge, not just for information, but for you, Jesus, the living word. God, that everyone, my heart included, would just say, we want to know you, Jesus. The word is all about you. It's pointing to you. It's talking about you. And that's why we can read the word and have joy. So God, we thank you. We want to praise you now, even as we just take communion, as we just celebrate, Jesus, your death, your body being broken, your blood being shed so that ours would not have to be, so that, Jesus, we could walk in newness of life, so that we could be back in fellowship with you, God, that our sins that once separated us from you have now been paid for. We thank you for that, Jesus. So we just praise you now, invite you now. God, we just ask for more, not just your omnipresence, your tangible presence, Jesus. Thank God, we sense that you're near and that you're here and you're wonderful in your precious name, God. Amen.